Beloved, perhaps you are familiar with the adage that a missionary's job is to work himself out of a job. I think of my good friend Steve Linetti, pastor now in Minnesota. He was in Indonesia with a Stone Age tribe for some 17 years. They were a demonized tribe, uh, just basically captured by demons, captured by an utterly pagan worldview. And in this particular case, uh, Steve and the other missionaries, his wife and the other missionaries they were with, went through a chronological approach, beginning with God as creator. And in this particular case, God did a mighty work and did and brought uh, great salvation to a number of men and women in this tribe, so much so that as the years went on, they were sanctified, they developed uh, leadership for their own church, and then this tribe even began to send people out to other surrounding islands and tribes to bring the gospel to bear. And I thought of this as we are going through 1 Thessalonians. Beloved, please take your Bibles and open them to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I'm going to read the first five verses of the chapter. This is where we've gone so far. Our passage this morning is verses 6 through 10. But let's remind ourselves what ground we've covered in this great letter from the Apostle Paul. This is the Word of God, 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 1. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Full conviction there in verse 5. It's interesting, beloved, in some Christian circles, you might hear the question being asked, have you made a decision for Christ? And that is coming from perhaps a right heart, but I would say the Apostle Paul wouldn't ask a question like that. The Apostle Paul would say, do you have full conviction in Christ? Are you showing the love of Christ in your life? There's a difference between, a world of difference between a decision and conviction. Decisions may fade. A decision, some decisions at least, are for the moment. True conviction lasts. True conviction, the kind of conviction the Apostle Paul, the kind of conviction God speaks of here, abides. God's people who are chosen, according to verse 4, are God's people who are changed. And in verses 1 through 5 that we just read, the Apostle Paul thanks God because God saved them. In verses 6 through 10, our passage this morning, Paul thanks God because God sanctified them and is sanctifying them. Beloved, draw your eyes again to the passage now we have before us, continuing in verse 6. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. 
For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Beloved, this is the word of God read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Now, this Thessalonian church, it's a model church. It's a newborn church. It's a young church. But it is an exemplary church. And what we see in these verses are three exemplary characteristics of this model church. Namely, their reception, their reputation, and their repentance. The first exemplary characteristic, beloved, we see here about this model Thessalonian church is their reception. Uh, Paul had already written about how the gospel came to them in verse 5. Now he writes how they received the gospel in verse 6, how they welcomed the gospel, and how they became imitators of Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Uh, Again, at the end of verse 5, he says, Just as you know what kind of men Paul, Silas, and Timothy proved to be among you for your sake, he continues, You yourselves, there's an emphatic, you yourselves also became imitators of us and of the Lord. Uh, So this idea of imitating Paul, is this this man worship? Is this hero worship? No, you may remember Paul told the immature church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, be imitators of me just as I am of the Lord. Or later, when Paul will write to the Philippian church, both Philippi and Thessalonica are in Macedonia. And later on, when Paul writes to the Philippians, in Philippians 3.17, he says, Brethren, join in following my example. So as Paul follows Christ, so also the Thessalonians here are following Paul and the other two men. And as a result, they are following, ultimately, the Lord. You see, these newborn Thessalonian believers welcomed the gospel. That's why he says, having received the word, literally having welcomed the word. In fact, the word translated received here is translated as welcomed in Acts 17, verse 5. Uh, the context of the location there is still Thessalonica. And he talks about this man, Jason, who was a Thessalonian believer who welcomed Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy into his household. That's the same word. So when the word of the Lord came to these Jewish people from the synagogue and the God-fearing Gentiles and the leading women that formed this fledgling church, they welcomed the word. They heard the gospel preached. They saw the gospel lived and they welcomed the gospel, the word of the Lord, into their midst. You could say it this way. They said amen to God's amen as it's revealed in preaching. So they welcomed the gospel, and as we continue in verse 6, they also suffered for it in joy, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Tribulation, a literal sense of intense pressure. Uh, This is a topic, and this is a word Paul will use three or four other times in 1 Thessalonians and a couple times in 2 Thessalonians. The heat was high for this church. And beloved, It's very easy for you and I in our very, very cushy environment in 21st century America in Gilbert, Arizona, to forget that the gospel arouses hostility. 
Most of our brothers and sisters in the world today, and certainly most of our brothers and sisters throughout history, have experienced this. Uh, Luther said, since Christ wore a crown of thorns, why would his followers expect to wear a crown of roses? We do have it very cushy here, and we praise the Lord for it. May we be good stewards of the freedom and the comfort and the prosperity that we enjoy. You see, the reality is, if joy is coming from a human perspective, a human origin only, it will die on the vine of persecution. But this joy is a supernatural joy. It's a gift from the Lord to his children, to his daughters, to his sons. This is a supernatural joy. It's a transcendent joy. It's a joy that flies far above the stormy waters of life. And when the gospel comes, when sinners are saved by the good news of Jesus Christ's once-for-all sacrifice, we know that there is joy among the angels in heaven, according to the teaching of Jesus. So also, there is joy among the believers here on earth, among the people of God. In fact, back in Acts chapter 17, I referenced that. That was the context when they began preaching and teaching in the synagogue in Acts 17, verse 1. But in verse 5 through 7, you can turn and read, or you can listen as I read it, Acts 17, 5. Uh, after God had given great uh, success and opened up hearts among some of the Jews in the synagogue and some of the God-fearing Gentiles and the leading women, in verse 5 of Acts 17, but the Jews, the Jewish leaders, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the rabble, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And coming upon the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. And when they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Verse 7, And Jason has welcomed them, has received them. That's the very same word. And then, because of this opposition, because of this hostility, they went on to Berea, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. God, again, blessed the gospel ministries. And then the enemies of the gospel from Thessalonica went up to Berea and stirred up trouble there and then forced Paul to be taken away to Athens. But the point here, back in our text here, is when those enemies of the gospel returned to Thessalonica from Berea, you better believe they cranked up the heat and they turned up the furnace on the Thessalonian believers. So the situation here in 1 Thessalonians 1, 6 is through time and trial, these young believers were challenged. But despite their doubts, despite their difficulties, they stayed true. And so their joy didn't fade when the affliction, when the tribulation came. And beloved, the point here is this, the same spirit that we read of in verse 5 who gives power to the one who preached, also the same spirit gives joy to the one who hears, the one who receives the gospel. The Holy Spirit works at both the front end and the back end of the equation. Excuse the engineering-ism of that. Beloved, out of the tribulation comes a deeper faith and a deeper joy and a cleansing I mean, for example, cultural Christianity goes away when Christians are under attack. I turn, if you would, for a moment to 2 Corinthians. Let's grab another biblical example in the case of the Apostle Paul. 
In 2 Corinthians 6, verse 1, I'll begin reading. Paul writes to this immature church, Working together with him, with Christ, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Verse 2, for he says, at the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation, giving no cause for offense in anything in order that the ministry be not discredited. But in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God, now watch this, in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in the Word of truth in the power of God by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers, yet true, unknown yet well known, as dying yet behold we live, as punished yet not put to death, sorrowful but always rejoicing always rejoicing in beatings, in hunger, in imprisonments, in tumults. The list goes on. And what's the result? What's the result of that? If you're still here, turn over a page to 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 and 2. So Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, which is in Achaia, and he says, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. That was the result of the work of God in the Macedonian believers, in particular the Thessalonian believers that Paul is speaking of here. So they have this first great exemplary characteristic for every believer at any point in time to model themselves after, namely their reception, their reception of the word of God, and even in this case, the reception of the men of God. The second exemplary characteristic, beloved, of this model church as we go to verses and 7 and 8 is their reputation. It's a reputation. It's how they received the gospel. Again, in verse 5, he talked about how, they, how the gospel came to them. Verse 6, how they received the gospel and became imitators. Now it's how they reverberated the gospel. We could even say their reverberation, how the gospel that they received echoed back out from them, rippled out, resounded out from them. And watch this. The imitators of verse 6 become the imitated of verses 7 and eight. You see, these newborn Thessalonians heard the gospel, they saw it lived out, they welcomed it in, and now they live it out themselves. They were chosen by God in verse four. They were changed by God. Now in verses seven and forward, they become channels for God. Look at verse six, or excuse me, verse seven. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. An example, a tupos. This Greek word originally meant the mark or bruise or wound that was left by a blow. In our modern vernacular, we sometimes jokingly say, ooh, that'll leave a mark. 
that was the dynamic there. And in fact, there's a great biblical example to kind of bring this out. In John 20, verse 25, you may remember loyal Thomas, who at first didn't want to believe the testimony of the godly women that had seen the resurrected Christ. And, loyal, and I say loyal Thomas because he's kind of given, I think, a bum's rap. None of the apostles believed the report until Jesus came to them. So the whole doubting Thomas, I think, is a misnomer. But I digress. John 20, verse 25, Thomas said, Unless I shall see in his hands the imprint, tupas, of the nails, and put my finger into the place, tupas, of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. So that's the original meaning of this word, and this word came to mean in the language of the time the seal on a wax, or seal for wax, the impression struck on a cone, uh, coin, the engraving of a stone. It was used for the metal cast for a coin so that the tupas, the metal cast for a coin, all other coins would come out and be an identical representation of that first one. This is what Paul talks about when he again writes to the church in Philippi, Philippians 3.17. Paul says, brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern, the tupas, the example you have in us. All this to say, beloved, the amazing reality of God's work in this young church of Thessalonica is they were used by God. They are being used by God at this time to literally shape the lives of the believers, of all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. All the believers, the text says, in Macedonia and in Achaia. Uh, Macedonia is the northern Roman province. Uh, Achaia is the southern Roman province in what was ancient Greece. And so the point is the Philippian and Berean brethren in Macedonia are being shaped by the testimony of the Thessalonians. The Athenian and Corinthian believers in Achaia are also being shaped. And by the way, it's amazing. Of all the churches that Paul wrote to, this is the only church in the New Testament where Paul, where God cites them as an example. So I love the Thessalonians. I think I had mentioned before, perhaps in the very opening thing, that I love uh, Acts 17, 11, the Bereans. I mean, yeah, they're more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. But don't sell the Thessalonians short. It's staggering the work God is doing in them. They welcomed the word of God. And as we continue, they trumpeted the word of God. They reverberated the word of God. Verse 8. He says, for, so this is the reason why, verse 8, that little for means this is the proof of the praise in verse 7. The proof of the praise in verse 7 is what he says here. For, the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. Eke keo, literally, ek echo, out of an echo. It, it was a trumpet blast that echoed out from them. It was like a giant echoing thunderclap in the sky resounding across the face of the earth. The word of the Lord, it changed their desires, it changed their ambitions, their behavior, their worship. And it did that in the case of Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. They became imitators of that, and now it changed their desires, ambitions, behavior, and worship as well, and it's now reverberated by them. And he continues, look at the rest in verse 8. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth. Every place your faith has gone forth. It's a representative type representing the breadth of the kingdom of God. 
from a human standpoint, I might have mentioned this before, Paul focused on major cities of the different Roman provinces with the idea that when the gospel would take hold there, the gospel would spread forth from that. And so the strategic location of Thessalonica furthered this spread. It went from the gospel went forth and their testimony is the point here, went east by sea to Ephesus and went west by land to Rome. That's why, for example, later when Paul was writing to the church in Rome, in Romans 15, 26, he says, Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. So the word of the Lord sounded forth. Now, this is both verbal and visual. They have a strong word that resonates and they have a powerful witness that reverberates. But the focus here is their witness. They are walking as Jesus Christ walked. They are shining examples of how to live a Christian life for any church, for any individual Christian. You may remember that Paul began with a reference to their transformation back in verse 3 of the three fruits of the Spirit, the three fruits of grace, of faith, love, and hope. These three fruits of grace, these three star qualities, faith, love, and hope, shone out from the Thessalonian believers. And so their joy in the midst of suffering attracts the attention of believers all across the world. And at the very end of 8, Paul finishes, he says, so that we have no need to say anything. Now, Paul's not saying, I don't need to open up the word of God anymore. We don't need to have fellowship. We all, whether we are brand new in the faith, whether we've been saved and trusting the Lord and studying scripture all our life, we all need a constant diet of the word of the Lord. So Paul's not saying we don't have anything to say about that. What he's saying is their Christianity is contagious and spreading so fast, it's going faster than Paul can travel. And it's not that the Thessalonian believers became evangelists and began sending out missionaries, like the example that I used of the Taliabo people in Indonesia at the beginning of the sermon. No, what the situation is, they stayed home and they faced the fierce pagan onslaught with joy despite the suffering, despite the tribulation. And that's what produced this fast-spreading report. So, in one sense, we can say that Paul and Silvanus and Timothy were very successful because they worked themselves out of a job. They would go to places in Macedonia and in Achaia, and the people would say, yeah, we've heard already the report of the transforming power of the gospel in the lives of those Thessalonians. You see, their lives were like a sounding board. A sounding board is a, a membrane or some kind of uh, structure that is put up above an orchestra or a, a speaker to reflect and accentuate and amplify the sound that goes out. Notice this. A sounding board does not produce sound. A sounding board only reflects the sound. In the same way, beloved, we don't write our own material. I don't spend my week of, of studying trying to suck something out of my thumb. I want to understand the word of God so that I can understand it clearly, so that I can preach it to you. But the point here is we preach and live the word of the Lord. And the focus here is on living the word of the Lord. The great reality of Christianity, of being a born-again believer, is you become an imitator for a while, and then you join the club of the imitated. That's what took place in these Thessalonians. 
The church makes the gospel visible in changed lives. And may Santan Bible Church continue to be a sounding board for the message of the gospel in this generation. And, as we'll get to later in the letter, may we excel yet more. So, this model church, they have the exemplary characteristic of their reception, their reputation. Finally, they have a third characteristic, which is their repentance. And their witness, while Paul did have a human strategy of a sword for the Lord and a sword for Gideon, the witness is a matter of maturity, not strategy. And how does Paul measure their maturity? How does God measure your maturity and my maturity? One metric is our repentance. You see, friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, understand this. Becoming a Christian doesn't mean adding the Jesus package to whatever lifestyle that is attractive to us and we choose. The gospel requires a new allegiance and the gospel produces a new assurance. It demands new loyalty and it gives a new longing. First, the gospel requires a new allegiance. Uh, Simply put, being born again, the conversion we're talking about is a radical change. It's a radical change in affection, devotion. It's a radical change in one's word and witness, one's lips and one's life. A radical change in truth and deed. And here in verses 9 and 10, the focus is on all the latter. It's the focus on the work, the life, and the deeds. Look at verse 9. For, another reason why, for they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you. Who are they themselves? That's the Philippians and the Bereans, the Athenians and the Corinthians, the Ephesians and the Romans. Some heard, some heard this testimony. Some probably came to Thessalonica and they said, this is real. Here in Thessalonica, there is life. There is life manifest out of the gospel. And what kind of reception we, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy had with the Thessalonians, what kind of reception was it? Was it cookies, biscuits, crumpets? Was it a meal? That's all well and fine, but no, the Thessalonians welcomed the men of God armed with the word of God, with conviction and with joy as a result of their new birth. And even from Paul, we can pause for a second, Paul, Paul didn't throw the gospel at them. Paul brought himself with it. He opened his heart to them. He stood with them and he walked with them. So the Thessalonians heard the gospel and they saw a gospel man and they became gospel men and gospel women. That's the testimony. That's what Paul is thanking God for here. And as a result, they repented. Look at verse 9 again. And how you turned to God from idols. Beloved, dear friend, idolatry is a universal and perennial sin. Uh, John Calvin said that the human heart is an idol factorium. It's an idol-producing factory. That's why the first and second of the Ten Commandments that we read earlier in our scripture reading deal with the subject of idols and idolatry. As we would go to the rest of the Council of Scripture, we know that idols are dead, but God is living. Idols are false. God is true. Idols are visible. God is invisible. Idols are the work of the creature. God is the creator of the universe. And 
for the Greek culture here, the Greek culture that the Thessalonian church found themselves in, it was a syncretistic culture. What I mean by that is they didn't have much, or they wouldn't have had much of a problem of the Thessalonians turning to God. Oh, you, well, we worship Zeus. You want to worship Yahweh? Fine, bring Yahweh into the pantheon of gods they had. The rub, the issue was when they turned away from the idols. There was no way to separate idolatry from the fabric of society, from the business, from everything else. That's why that the furnace heat was turned up. And even when we think of the accusation the enemies of the gospel made back in Acts 17, verse 6, do you remember what they said? They said, talking about Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, they said, these men have turned the world upside down. That was true, and now the Thessalonian believers are turning the world upside down even more so. That is what is at stake here. Or we could put it this way, metaphorically speaking, the high-speed train of Christianity came into Thessalonica. And why, why do I say high-speed? We can think of the example I opened up with, my friend Steve Linetti. 17 years, what took you so long? I mean, Thessalonians, it's like months, several months, and they're, they're, they're rocking the world. So in this case, in God's economy, the high-speed train of Christianity came to Thessalonica, and the believers did not have the option to put one foot on the train and leave one foot on the ground of their idolatry. It was one or the other. There's no middle ground. And beloved, that's the same situation for you and for me. And we can ask the question, okay, well, yeah, that was back then. They had idols. I remember having a business dinner one time with, a, uh, with an Indian colleague. And I love it. I'm not picking on India. I love, I love India. I love the people. I really love the food. I mean, let me put this way. I love the food. I really love the people. That's, <laughs> that's what I meant to say. But uh, he talked about, he, we're, I was evangelizing him, and he was talking about the idols in his house. And I said, well, how do you pick which idol and which God? And he said, oh, it's, it's kind of like, you know, Avengers or superheroes. You, know, you, just, you, you pick one person likes Iron Man, another one likes, you know, Thor and so forth. Uh, that, was, that was the dynamic. Now, we might say, well, we're more, we're more sophisticated than that. We don't worship idols here. Really? Are, are you sure about that? Beloved, dear friend, idolatry is, again, a universal perennial problem. Any attitude or belief, anything that supersedes God, anything that causes us to focus more on it or him or that, then God can be an idol. And you can ask yourselves a couple diagnostic questions. When you're in a mental idol state, I-D-L-E, what does your mind gravitate to? It could be an idol, an I-D-O-L. What makes you angry? What makes you angry? Is it something related to God and the gospel and God being defamed, or is it something related to self? That could be an idol. Both of these could be an existing idol or could even become an idol. Good things can become an idol if we would sin to get them or sin to hold on to them. And by the way, we understand this. We, this, is, this is real life. It is not easy. Whatever flavor, and, and by the way, the idolatry of America in my mind, is more pernicious, more dangerous than the idolatry of India because it's more subtle. It's more subtle. And the point, beloved, is this. It's not easy to eject and reject the idols we've worshipped since childhood. That's why it is a battle. It's a holy war beginning with self. So 
these newborn Thessalonians turned from, and they turned to, they turned from idols to God. They turned from sin to Christ. They turned from darkness to light. And what, what do we, what's the theological term from when we talk about turning from something and turning to something? It's repentance. Yes, you win the prize. It's repentance. In the New Testament, there are two words used for repentance. One word has more of an accent on a change of mind. The other word, which is the word here, has more of a focus on a turning of life, a change in life. Because changing one's thinking in this way will change one's behavior, will change one's life. Also, understand this, that repentance is necessary for entrance into the Christian life. And repentance is necessary for continuance in the Christian life. And let me explain, especially the latter part. We do not hold on to our salvation because we repent. We repent because our salvation holds on to us, because the indwelling Holy Spirit holds on to us. And a fruit of that, a result of that is repentance. 1 John 1, 9, John there is describing characteristic behavior of believers. He says, if we confess our sins, if we repent and turn from our sin, God is faithful to hear from heaven, forgive us our sins. We've already been eternally forgiven for all of our sins, but from a temporal standpoint, from a satisfaction standpoint, from a relationship standpoint with the Lord, he is faithful to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And beloved, what Paul is saying here is the repentance of the Thessalonians is evidence of their salvation. Or if we even go back to verse 4, their Repentance is evidence of their election. And we can ask the question that Paul answers for us here is, what does this repentance look like? In the case of the Thessalonians, what does true repentance look like in your life or my life? Well, we serve God and we wait upon Jesus. It's a responsibility in the present and a readiness for the future. It's responsibility in the present. He says, you turned from idols to God to serve, look at the rest of verse 9, or the middle of verse 9, to serve a living and true God. Idols are lifeless and counterfeit. God is living and true. And what he's saying here is they turn from what kills the soul to the one who gives eternal life. They left the emptiness of false religion and turned to the fullness of the Almighty to serve, even as a slave, a living and true God. And beloved, dear friend, understand this. Every single person here in this room, every person in the world is a slave. You are either a slave of sin or a slave of Christ. And the question is, which kind of slave are you? And by the way, this dynamic here to serve, this turning to serve a living and true God is not limited to church ministry. It's every aspect of life. Uh, we already saw that a little bit talking about the Greek culture at the time for them. But the point here is conversion is of the whole man, the whole woman. Our emotions are turned. Our desires are turned. Our heart is turned. Our eyes are turned. Our hands are turned. It's both a decisive break and a con continuity of life. 
And by way of application, we could put it this way. Beloved, God did not appoint us to sit on an island and pat ourselves on the back. He appointed us to serve him and to bear good fruit. The fruit of faith, love, and hope, and service. The gospel demands a new allegiance. The gospel also gives a new assurance. There is a decisive break. There is active service, and there is a patient waiting. There's responsibility in the present, and there is readiness for the future. Look at verse 10. And to wait for his son from heaven. He, they turn, you Thessalonians turn to serve God and to wait for his son from heaven. This is the first mention in 1 Thessalonians of the second coming of Christ. It will be a subject that will appear in every chapter of both letters as we go forward. And that is because, beloved, working and waiting go together. They fit like hand and glove. Serving is getting busy for Christ here on earth. Waiting is looking for Christ from heaven. Jesus, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, he continues in verse 10. Beloved, dear friend, his resurrection from the dead guarantees and assures his return from heaven. His resurrection from the dead guarantees his return from heaven. He went up to come back again. And we wait for that. And by the way, this waiting isn't the kind of waiting in a doctor's office. Uh, This is the kind of waiting on Christmas Day. This is the kind of waiting for a loved one that you haven't seen in a long time who's coming back into your house. You see, where there's love, there's a longing. And this is the kind of waiting with expectation and anticipation that Paul was talking about when he said at the beginning of his letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1-7 that you're awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, we believe he's coming and we hope in this coming. And in the same way, if you have a visitor, a loved one that's coming, you prepare, you make the guest room ready, you do what's necessary. So also we, as we wait for the return of our Lord, we need to be ready. And then he finishes this magnificent first chapter, Jesus, who delivers us, who rescues us from the wrath to come, or as Andrew Snelling would say, the wrath to come. This is God's settled fury. This is God's righteous anger and fierce judgment over sin, over rebellion, over transgression. And by the way, understand this. A major part of God's goodness is his wrath. He will judge. God, the righteous judge, will judge the atrocities of the Holocaust. He will judge every rape. He will judge every murder. And we praise him and thank him for that. And beloved, God reveals both his love and his wrath in the Old Testament. And God reveals his greater love and his greater wrath in the New Testament. Also understand this. Wrath in Scripture is used exclusively for unbelievers. It's never used regarding believers. And this is the kind of sentiment, the kind of reality Paul will talk about when we get four chapters later in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, where there he says, God has not destined us for wrath, 
but for the obtaining salvation, but excuse me, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the man Jesus Christ both delivers us from wrath and he delivers wrath. He delivers believers from wrath and he delivers wrath to unbelievers. The same hand that comforts the righteous punishes the wicked. And we praise him for both. And Paul's focus here after this magnificent eruption of thanksgiving to God for the incredible work in this fledgling newborn church, Paul's focus here is in closing is not on the final glory of the believer, but on the final ruin or destruction of the unbeliever. It's the same kind of heart cry, the same kind of appeal that John the baptizer, John the forerunner, when Israel was coming to him to be baptized, and he said to the religious leaders of Israel, and he said to many of the multitude that were unwilling to acknowledge their state as sinners in need of repentance, John said in Luke 3, 7, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You see, that's, that's the natural state of our heart. We are all born with poisonous vipers in our bosom. We're all born in need of forgiveness. We're all born in need of the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ, through the excruciating agony Christ suffered on the cross, the excruciating physical agony, and the even greater excruciating spiritual and emotional agony that he experienced when he bore the weight of sins. And in fact, excruciating, that word comes from ek out of crux, cross, from the Latin cross, out of the cross, excruciating. Jesus Christ experienced that on our behalf. And beloved, dear friend, what we have here at the end of verse 10 is a warning danger sign. Each of us in life, whenever we come across a danger sign and a warning sign, is that a suggestion or is that a law? Is that sign there to steal my joy for the day or is that, that sign there to save me? Now, we may ask that question of signs we have in this life, but dear friend, the danger warning sign here is to save you. What you whisper in the dark will be heard in the daylight. And if I can, let me ask, if you are here this morning and you're not a believer, we're thrilled you're here. I would love to interact with you more. Anyone here would as well. Let me ask a couple diagnostic questions. If you were to pass away today, if you were to die today and rocket into the presence of God, and he said, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say to him? Would it have something to do with, look at what I've done? Or would it say, look at what Jesus Christ has done. Look at the righteous, sinless life of Christ. Look at his victorious death at the cross and his victorious resurrection from the grave. That is why it's not on my own merit. It's on the merit and worth and obedience and satisfaction of all of the law of God that Jesus Christ accomplished on our on my behalf. That is the gospel message. Jesus Christ said if anyone, any man or woman comes to him and asks for forgiveness, he would receive you to him, forgive you of your sins, adopt you into his family. You would become a joint heir. You would stop being an enemy of God and you would become a friend of God. You would have a new birth and heaven would be your promise guarantee for eternity. And a few weeks ago, I preached out of Psalm 23, and you may remember our hope 
that God gives us in Psalm 23 is not walking in the valley of the shadow of death, but walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Our shepherd takes us through the veil into the presence of God. He takes us through the valley of the shadow of death into the eternally green pastures of his presence forever and ever in heaven. That is the gospel message. That is the word of the Lord that resounded out from Thessalonians. May that word continue to resound even greater from Santan Bible Church. Please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We thank you for your good word. We thank you for the word of the Lord, for the word of the gospel, for the good news, Lord Jesus, of your victory over disease, your victory over death, your victory over Satan, your victory over sin. We praise you and thank you, Lord, for the incredible testimony of the Thessalonian church. We thank you, Lord God. I thank you for my beloved Santan Bible Church. I don't deserve this church. And Father, bless all of us together. Join our hearts even closer together. Help us to run this race for your glory, for our joy, and for a gospel witness to a lost and dying world. It is uh, Lord, with great anticipation, we even look forward to the testimony of the baptism that will come from Eden that we'll hear in just a bit. And it's for your glory and honor, Lord Jesus. We pray, we sing, we do all these things. Amen.